0: Hi, and welcome to ESA Explores. This week, we delve into the remarkable phenomena of space weather, the ever-changing effect of the sun's mood swings on the solar system, and in particular, our home, Earth. I'm Rosa Jesse, coming to you from ESA's ESOC Mission Control and Operations Centre in Darmstadt, Germany. And I'll be guiding you through this important topic, from one of the largest solar events on record, the Carrington event of 1859, to some historical myths that describe the origins of the dancing aurora at Earth's poles. And also, we'll find out about the current understanding of what's really happening at the Sun. First of all, the day of the solar event. The morning of Thursday the 1st of September in 1859 was sunny near London. As was the norm on such mornings, the 33-year-old amateur astronomer Richard Carrington climbed the stairs to his private observatory, opened the slit in its domed roof and pointed his brass telescope at the sun. By projecting an 11-inch image of our star onto a plate of yellow stained glass, he could make out the details of the fiery solar surface, including groups of sunspots, temporary regions that form from strong magnetic field lines bursting out from within the sun and through its surface, appearing visibly darker than their surroundings. On this particular morning, Carrington was tracing the intricate sunspots that dappled the solar surface onto a sheet of paper, when all of a sudden he saw two patches of intensely bright light erupt from one of the largest groups of dark spots. Five minutes later, the bright fireballs had disappeared, but their effects were soon to be felt across the globe.
1: New York Times, August 30th, 1859. Few have had the opportunities of witnessing these sublime displays, but on Sunday night, the heavens were arrayed in a drapery more gorgeous than they have been for years such was the aurora as thousands witnessed it from housetops and from pavements many imagined they heard rushing sounds as if aeolus had let loose winds new orleans daily Picayune, september second eighteen fifty nine towards half past eight o'clock a singular phenomenon took place the horizon from north to northeast became a deep crimson blue which expanding slowly made the sky appear as if lighted by a bengal fire At first it was supposed that some great conflagration had taken place on the outskirts of the city, but it was soon recognized that no natural fires could produce this particular hue. Crowds of people gathered at the street corners, admiring and commenting upon the singular spectacle. Many took it to be the sign of some great disaster or important event, citing numerous instances when such warnings had been given. Several old women were nearly frightened to death, thinking it announced the end of the world and immediately took to saying their prayers. A fat old citizen tremblingly stated that this was the avant courier of a dreadful epidemic like cholera of 1833, whilst a French gentleman pooh-poohed and gravely assured us that this was a well-known sign of a revolution in Paris, requesting us to make note of the date.
0: Not only did the skies appear to be set ablaze, but the effects of Carrington's chance observation were being felt on the ground through telegraph lines, the internet of their day.
1: Rochester Union and Advertiser, Thursday evening, 30th of August, 1859. Never in my experience of 15 years in working telegraph lines have I witnessed anything like the extraordinary effect of the Aurora Borealis between Quebec and Farther Point last night. The line was in most perfect order, and well-skilled operators worked incessantly from 8 o'clock last evening till 1 this morning, and at the latter hour so completely were the wires under the influence of the Aurora Borealis that it was found utterly impossible to communicate and the line had to be closed, the same difficulty prevailed as far south as Washington.
0: I called Stuart Clark earlier this week, an astronomy journalist and author of The Sun Kings, a book detailing the full story behind Carrington's observations and how they ushered in a new era for astronomy. He explained how this incredible solar event engulfed the entire globe. Hi, Stuart. Yeah, it's me. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Could you tell us a bit about the background of the 1859 Carrington event and what it was like for people? Yeah, the
2: 1859 um, Carrington event um, is a quite extraordinary moment in history because by my reckoning, the aurora that was produced on the Earth because of the action of the flare and the space weather. I think that must have been the most widely observed astronomical event in history. And the reason for saying that is because when all the observations and all the um, publications that reported on these aurora were analyzed by an American scientist called Elias Loomis, I mean, he found that this, this aurora event covered nearly two-thirds of the skies of the Earth. And it wasn't like another astronomer can say an eclipse um, or a a naked eye supernova, whereas with the eclipse, you have to be on a a fairly narrow track in order to see it. Um, And with a naked eye supernova, you have to know the night sky well enough to be able to pick out um, a new star that's just appeared. Now, the 1859 uh, aurora, it just covered the sky, all a section of the sky, and was so bright and so colourful that people reported being woken up in their beds. And it it was widely observed, and many people didn't know at all what they were actually seeing. So it created quite um, a uh, of public interest that spurred on the scientists to try and discover exactly what had happened on that night. So we have a number of different reports. One I particularly like comes from Paris, where it was said that uh, citizens of Paris looked up into the night sky and saw burning purple arches, mm-hmm. which is a kind of lovely description. Um, Elsewhere you have this really blood-red imagery that's being talked about. Um, There was one report from the Caribbean that talked about the sky dancing with a thousand fantastic figures of fire. In the Midwest of America, people reported being woken from their beds by the brightness of the aurora, and because it was a red colour, they thought... Then it was the reflection of the atmosphere of huge prairie fires sweeping across those states. And the same happened, I mean, the Caribbean islands as well. Is we have reports of some of the people who lived there believing that the islands were aflame, and so running to the beaches um, to sort of await to rescue or at least be as safe as they could be by the water.
0: Really sounds quite scary, actually.
2: It's apocalyptic in a
0: sense. Yeah. Um, because you can
2: reduce it down uh, to what happened that night in in very modern terms because Mm. the two bits of technology that were predominantly affected by the the magnetism and electricity that was uh, associated with the aurora um, were the magnetic compasses and the telegraph network and in a sense a great sort of scientific quest to try and explain
0: Of course, people have lived alongside the wonders of the aurora for a very, very long time. For those living in polar regions, the dancing lights have become a huge part of their culture and understanding of the world. Next, I spoke to Per Helga Nyland, museum communicator within the Arctic Circle, who has some fascinating insights into some of the past understandings of the aurora. Rooms museum, Hello, Per Helga. Hello, yes, this is me. Hi, it's Rosa from ESA. Oh, great to hear from you again. How are you? Um, really, really busy. We're going to open a new exhibition in a few hours,
3: concerning um, um, the Sami people, and in particular, queer people, because this week marks the Tromsa Arctic Pride. So we are participating in that by putting up this new exhibition. So I just came in the door, I've been buying some wine for the exhibition opening, and still a few things to do, flanks to voice and, and all this, so it's a very busy day in concert.
0: Well, hopefully the sky comes out in rainbow colours for the Pride event.
3: That's, that's what I'm also hoping for, it would be exactly what we need, yeah.
0: The Aurora has been alongside human beings near the poles of Earth for thousands and thousands of years so can you give an understanding of some of the the history of people's understanding of the aurora?
3: Oh well yeah people have believed all sorts of things and uh, uh, it's incredible what an impact the aurora has had on, on mythology um, in the circumpolar regions particularly of course the northern lights in the northern hemisphere uh, because the Southern Lights is rarely seen by by humans, but there are stories among the Maori people of New Zealand that concerns the Aurora uh, up here in the north, uh, particularly in Scandinavia, uh, the Aurora has been very much associated with the spirits of forefathers or deceased people, so um, people have been very, very respectful to the aurora um, and and Thinking that, you know, you have to, you know, you have to pay respect to the Aurora, you must treat it very nicely, uh, because uh, that's how you should treat your forefathers. Um, And this has come to a rather interesting uh, uh, result in that uh, even children nowadays are advised not to. To uh, mock the aurora, not to upset the aurora, which you can do by whistling to it or waving a white piece of fabric uh, against it. Um, even I was told that by my grandmother
0: when I grew up. So I of course, guess I ran out and tried it out. But it was it was fun. Um, I, but I also heard that you the modern version now is that uh, some children try to upset the aurora, but waving uh, not with
3: the fabric anymore, but scarves but with white plastic bags. It's more what we have handy nowadays, you know. Then there's a variation of this in Greenland, where the Greenlanders um, thought of the aurora as the spirit of dead or stillborn children uh, playing football in their afterlife. Uh, Sort of a very (laughs) very jolly idea there. They were even using the skull of a walrus for a ball sounds very practical but I'm sure it doesn't really matter in the Mm -hmm. spiritual world. Um, Other more fantastic things have been claimed as well. In Finland there is the wonderful story about how the aurora is produced by one gigantic fox and this fox lives on the north pole and runs happily around and whenever it brushes against rocks or trees um, of which there are plenty on the north pole according to this myth um, The aurora will flare out as a sort of cold light from its magic uh, fur. Uh, This gives the the name, the Finnish name for aurora, which is Revopulet which actually means fox fire or or fox flame. Wow, that's (laughs) lovely. it is, it is um, and in uh, well, and there are other other stories and beliefs that concerns the spiritual world, if we go across the Atlantic over to North America, we'll find that some of the First Nations in the Toronto area they are um, they're telling about the aurora as a sort of beacon or a, a lighthouse that is put there by their head god the, the, the mighty spirit uh, in order to tell and uh, them everything is fine so that's a much friendlier light in a way than the one we have in Scandinavia and in the opposite side again if we go over to eastern Siberia there are beliefs that
0: How does that compare to more recent understandings? Well,
3: even when modern science begins working with the aurora, it is very much of a mystery. Um, Stories have been told that the aurora is created as a sort of uh, reflection of of light from when the Sami people, the indigenous people of Scandinavia are up in the mountains searching for their reindeer, carrying torches, and that's the light we see. Um, Swedish scientists came up with the idea that the aurora is a glowing light from a big volcano which is under the ice on the North Pole. Um, and we've had explanations uh, that brought in various types of gases and vapours um, saw Peter vapor for instance, from, from the ocean that, for some reason, caught fire in the atmosphere. Um, and all these explanations are, are rather quite a home, way away from, from reality. But it goes to show how, how very, very difficult it was to really understand what the aurora is. And one of the main misunderstandings that I think led scientists a bit astray is that So many people believe the aurora to be reflected or refracted light from the sun. Mm. Um, Which is almost ironic because nowadays, of course, we know that uh, the aurora is caused indeed by radiation from the sun, the solar wind. But that is not the same as sunlight. So it wasn't really until the mid-1800s, when uh, Swedish uh, scientist Ångström uh, discovered that the aurora is actually a gas, and this gas is glowing in its own right. Only then they could really prove that it is not sunlight as such. But even Ångström wasn't able to tell why the gases in the atmosphere started to, to glow. Uh, that was something that only Christian Birkeland could come with, with, with a hypothesis about. Um, in the late, late 1800s.
0: It's amazing really that he could discover that then. You can't experiment with the aurora. There's no other thing like it on Earth. That's right, and that is why Christian Bedlam tried something which seemed
3: impossible. He wanted to bring the aurora into his laboratory so that he could study it in a closed environment. And this is so typical for scientists of his time, it's very much the, the idea of, of the late 1900s, the late, late 19th century um, uh, scientists, that they want to extract organisms from nature and study them on their own, uh, which mm-hmm. isn't quite what we would do today, but alright, that was their way of doing it. But of course, what he, what he did was to recreate a little piece of outer space in a glass box. It looks a bit like an aquarium, if you like, with very thick glass walls. And then he fitted that way put a a small planet inside made of metal, uh, brass in this case. Inside the brass ball, he put a a magnet. uh, And this way, he created a a space system with uh, a planet. And this planet had a magnetic field. Then, through pumping out almost all the air inside he created a very low pressure but there was still a little bit of gas left inside which meant that there would be an atmosphere for this planet and now by bombarding this planet with electrons he was hoping to see real miniature auroras forming around his miniature planet and that is exactly what happened it took him a lot of work he mm-hmm. and his assistant, Mr. Dierbeek we have to say, I think actually David did most of the technical work <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and it was very hard for them but they managed to do this um, and uh, this experiment from 1906, recreated in a better version, improved version in 1913 uh, was groundbreaking uh, or it was a bit of a breakthrough for, for big he could see that, yes to appear in this way and he was correct about that but there wasn't any way we could actually measure this until we started sending up satellites and and rockets into the atmosphere. He really believed in it uh, but he didn't live long enough to see
0: see it um, tested and, and proven. And you mentioned that ever since we sent satellites up, we have a better picture of, of the mechanisms of how the aurora is created. So could you tell us a bit about what, what we've learned now through satellite technology?
3: Well, uh, we've been able to uh, measure uh, the influx of electrons and protons from the sun. We can measure more accurately how high above uh, ground level we find the various gases that take part in creating the aurora, uh, where the most intense auroras are, the brightest ones are, and so on. And now we know that the green aurora that I'm used to seeing here in Tromsø appears between approximately 100 and 150 kilometers above Earth. And it's green because it's created in a layer of oxygen gas, uh, if the auroras are particularly strong, we'll sometimes see that uh, these uh, green auroras get a, a pink uh, fringe of frills um, below. Uh, that is uh, aurora created in nitrogen gas layers below 100 kilometers above ground. Um, and also much higher up, of course, is the uh, orange-red aurora also that created in, in layers of oxygen, but from protons and not from electrons. Um, and this is the kind of aurora that you might get to see much further south, even over Germany, um, which is why so so many of the old explanations of the aurora from Central Europe are, are describing a red aurora and, uh, and mm. not a green one like we have here. Mm.
0: Yeah, and as we've heard from the records, the Carrington event was often described as lighting up the skies with fiery red hues. That's so interesting. Um, Thanks for describing that brief history to us. And if people want to find out more about the exhibitions that you've got or the work that you're doing, how can they find you? Well, the easiest
3: way would be to to go on and Google for Tromsø Museum, Uh, but also you could look for the Arctic University of Norway. And you can find us on on Facebook and all the social media. And uh, and we're always happy when people write to us and want to know some more.
0: Great. Well, hopefully people will get in touch after they've heard some of these incredible stories. Well, thank you so
4: much for having me in. Pleasure. It's been
0: lovely talking to you. And good luck with Arctic Pride.
3: Thank you so much. Yeah, that's, I might, I might better run up and now hoist the rainbow flag and the special Sami rainbow flag that they have designed. It's quite a new one. So, ah, yeah, get ready for the opening in just a few hours. That sounds great.
4: Well,
0: good luck and thanks so much for talking to
3: me. Right. All right. That was very, just a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye Bye bye.
0: Finally, I spoke with Sophie Burley, a young graduate trainee in ESA's space weather office, to really get to grips with what we currently think to be the truth behind extreme weather events at the Sun, and find out, is there any way of actually predicting them? So we've been talking about the Carrington event of 1859, and it all begins with two extremely bright flashes that Carrington saw at the Sun. He didn't know what they were, but do we have any idea of what that was?
4: yes so what he was actually observing though he didn't realize it was a solar flare uh, which is a bright flash of light that radiates out from the sun's surface and these solar flares are associated with sunspots so the more sunspots uh, you see on the sun's surface the more likely you're going to see solar flare and as these flares are light they take eight minutes to reach earth because they travel at the speed of light but What is interesting is they are often followed by a coronal mass ejection. And this is essentially where a a chunk of the sun is expelled out into space and sometimes towards us. And I think it's important here just to quickly think about what the sun is and what it's made up of. Uh, Essentially, the sun is a big hot ball of gas under extreme temperatures and pressure. And it becomes a new material called plasma. So essentially, these coronal mass ejections are just large plasma eruptions this ejected plasma is tangled up with magnetic fields so when it travels towards earth and does um, it interacts with our magnetic field that protects us and causes a a variety of effects on earth that we see uh, affecting our technology our communications actually both on earth and in space so satellites they, they see the effects
0: um and how big are these ejections the size of a coronal mass ejection
4: can reach as far as a quarter of the way towards Earth from the sun. Wow. Which is huge, I think. That's a, that's a lot, and it can be up to a trillion kilograms of solar material.
0: So this is all quite dramatic stuff. These are all
4: temporary events that we don't see all the time. But we do see some effects that are more constant. Mm-hmm. For example, there is a steady particle stream coming out of the sun, and constantly called the solar wind. And this is just constantly flowing towards us, and mostly does very little Mm -hmm. interaction with our own magnetic field. However, sometimes the particles in the solar wind uh, can become accelerated by a coronal mass ejection or a solar flare and that causes something called a shock and this could have its own effects. This This is called a solar particle event.
0: So you work with the people who are predicting space weather, which is really hard. Yes. There
4: are so many variables. You've got to sort of work out how things are linked and and what affects what.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So the sun is quite erratic and unpredictable, but there are some patterns in how it behaves.
4: Yeah. So whilst we can't sort of day-to-day guess exactly
0: what the sun will do,
4: um, we do see that there is an 11-year cycle by which the sun gets more active, followed by times of quiet and really little to no activity. At the moment, we are at pretty much the quietest time. I think we've just passed what we call solar minimum. And so we expect there to be very little to no activity. But it's not to say we shouldn't, you know, be prepared because, you know, just as in the middle of summer, you might have a sudden rainstorm. We could have a solar flare, big storm event Mm -hmm. in in the middle of the quiet period.
0: So that's it for this first of two episodes about space weather, with me, Rosa Jesse. Find out what the Space Weather Office is up to via at ESA Operations on Twitter, as well as at ESA Space Weather. For the next podcast, we'll speak again to Stuart Clark about what a Carrington-like event would do on Earth today. How would our modern world fare with another huge blast from the Sun? We also speak to ESA's Head of Space Weather, Yussi Luntama, who explains ESA's plans to provide the urgently needed warnings of extreme solar activity with the Lagrange mission. And have you ever wondered what a solar storm actually sounds like? Stay tuned for the next episode to find out.